fans and welcome to shut up and wrestle an old school wrestling podcast about good conversations and great stories i am your host brian r solomon and this is episode 73 featuring my guest wrestling historian and author tim keenan we'll be talking about tim in just a minute I have a few things I want to get to first, a few things on the horizon, and some interesting notes about this show and what it holds in the future. So first of all, I want to mention uh, just one last time that um, this coming Friday, the 23rd, will be the book release party for my new non-wrestling book, Superheroes, the history of a pop culture phenomenon from Ant-Man to Zorro. We're having a book release party at Luna Azora Italian Restaurant in Fairfield, Connecticut, from 5 to 8 p.m. this Friday night, June 23rd. It's the same place where we had the book release party for Blood and Fire. So if you're in the area and you want to stop by and say hello, I would love that, would love to see you, and I hope it's going to be a lot of fun. Also want to make mention of some items regarding Blood and Fire on the horizon. I've mentioned this last week, but I've got two appearances, two signings coming up next month regarding the book. First, on July 1st, that's Saturday, July 1st, from 4 to 10 p.m., I will be at the Jewett City Carnival in Jewett City, Connecticut, at the specifically at the Northeast Wrestling Show happening that night, and I will have a table. I will be signing copies of the book, and I hope to see you there. And also, at the end of the month, July 29th, I, along with a lot of other fine people, will be at the New England Fan Fest. It's happening at the Crown Plaza Providence Warwick Hotel in Warwick, Rhode Island. Again, that's July 29th. The event is uh, on a Saturday. It's from 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. I'll be signing copies of Blood and Fire there as well. Hope to see you. Now, got something interesting and exciting that I'm hoping to unleash on the show in the weeks to come, and I want to start the rumblings right now and right here This is something that I recently had a conversation with Brian Last about, of course, the great Brian Last, the head of the Arcadian Vanguard Network, wanted to talk about a way to kind of expand this show a little bit to include some of the gems, some of the interviews that I did during my time at WWE. I'm sitting on kind of a cornucopia, a treasure chest, if you will, of historic interviews with wrestling legends. Uh, some of whom are no longer with us. Some of these interviews are very short in nature or clustered together around a certain theme. Some of them are much longer form. And as with anything, the more time goes by, the more interesting, fascinating, kind of historical and valuable they become. So I thought, why am I sitting on these things? I could share these things. And in some cases, I could turn some of them into actual episodes of Shut Up and Wrestle. 
So this show is not going to become an archive show where it's just all canned interviews from the past. It's still going to be largely and mostly these kind of new live interviews that I've been doing. But now and then, I think I'd like to sprinkle in one of these historical interviews from the archives, from the Brian R. Solomon archives. And in a couple of weeks, not next week, but I think the week after for episode 75, I'm planning to run one of these, specifically a 2006 interview that I did with the American Dream, Dusty Rhodes. And it runs about a half hour. It's pretty in-depth. We cover a wide range of topics, both intimate and completely ridiculous. And I think you're going to find it very, very interesting and very telling. And as I said, with the American Dream now long gone, it is a window into the past. So I'm not going to let these interviews just sit around collecting dust any longer. I'm going to make use of them, and I'm going to start bringing them to you, the listeners of Shut Up and Wrestle, as the show moves along. But now let's get to this week's show. Let's get to this week's conversation and interview. Speaking of sitting on it a a long time, I've been sitting on this one for a few weeks. It is the interview that I did with my good friend Tim Keenan, and it stems from when I met Tim a few weeks ago, or now actually it's a couple of months ago, when I first went to Michigan to accept the Michigan Notable Book Award for Blood and Fire. Now, Tim is a longtime fan of Detroit big-time wrestling. He has been involved in the wrestling scene in Detroit for decades, and he is also, as we will discuss here, the author of Everybody Loves Mickey, the autobiography of Irish Mickey Doyle. Rather, he worked with Mickey on that book, and he is also currently at work and pushing for the writing and publication of a biography of Ernie Roth, a.k.a. Abdullah Farouk, a.k.a. The Grand Wizard. We talk about these subjects and many more old-school wrestling topics on this week's episode, and I am going to take you to it right now. Okay, so it's my pleasure this week on Shut Up and Wrestle to welcome somebody to the show who gave me and my daughter a personal tour of Kobo Arena and many other, well, the former Kobo Arena, and many uh, other chic-related locations in Detroit, for which I'm eternally grateful. He also happens to be a fellow wrestling writer and historian. He is the biographer of Irish Mickey Doyle, the author of Everybody Loves Mickey, The Life and Times of Irish Mickey Doyle, and he's working on some other stuff, which we'll probably get to in a little bit if he's willing to talk about it. I'm talking about Tim Keenan. Tim, thanks for coming on Shut Up and Wrestle. Ryan, thanks. It's great to be here. Good to have you. And again, I have to thank you once again for people <laughs> that follow me online. And if you're a member of the Shut Up and Wrestle Facebook group, which you should be, then you saw a whole bunch of pictures that I posted from my my chic tourism that I did in Michigan. And basically anything that you saw me doing in the city of Detroit, it was thanks to Tim. So thank you, Tim, for that. Oh, you're welcome. It was my pleasure. And it was fun to uh, snoop around the bowels of the former Cobo Arena. But as I said, uh, the next time you come back, there is another way to get even deeper into the bowels where you can still see the seats and stuff. So we have something to look forward to. Yeah, and so for just for people to understand who are listening, uh, Kobo Arena essentially is no more. Uh, the the structure is there. It's something totally different now. What's it called now? What's the name? Oh, again? it's uh, 
uh, they changed the name a couple of times. Now it is the Huntington Place, a, right. a bank owns or has the naming rights. But they took the arena and they made it, they tried to make it, or they did make it into a space for meeting rooms and stuff. That's where we went through that long hallway, like into the middle of it. Um, there's meeting rooms and a ballroom or something in there. But uh, there's another place you can go. If you go in the basement, you can see seats, which is where I was before with somebody else and, and uh, couldn't quite remember how to get there with you. So the seats in the basement, are you talking about, are they just loose or is it like, no, no, actual... if, you, if you go into, if you, if you enter the, what was the arena from the basement level, we went in on the ground floor level. Mm-hmm. If we go in, in the basement level. You can actually walk into onto the floor of what was the arena. And there's still like half the seats on one side are still where they used to be. Wow. That's wild. That's um, it's kind of sad, I guess, in a way what they did, it's, it's like, um, I mean, you know, it would be like if you did that to Madison Square Garden or the Olympic Auditorium or something like that to just to just take it and gut it and unceremoniously repurpose it. Was there any kind of an outcry that happened or anything? No, because, you know, uh, at the time they started doing that, they had Joe Louis Arena right next door. Right. They also had the Palace in Auburn Hills. And now they've got Little Caesars Arena that that has everything. So, I mean, there's uh, there's always been an improvement place to go for wrestling and basketball and hockey and whatever else. But uh, it's an Olympia is totally gone. Right. Now you can maybe find a brick online somewhere. (laughs) So, so for people that, that don't know when you go in, if, if you, if you approach Huntington Plaza or whatever it's called, what what, Huntington place, what used to be Kobo, you can still see the outside structure, the circular structure of Kobo arena, you can still go up to the roof of Cobo Hall where the parking is, where where the Giant and Hulk Hogan had their monster truck battle and the Giant <laughs> fell to his apparent death off the roof, but then was fine. You can still go up there. But once you go inside, it's unrecognizable. I mean, totally it's, it's totally something different. Now, the the Joe Lewis, that, that giant Joe Lewis statue, was that formerly at Joe Lewis Arena? And they moved. No, that over. was always there. That was always there. That, so that was even in the Kobo days. That was there. Um, towards the end of the Kobo days, probably. Okay. I can't remember what year they put that in, but it was like probably the late '80s when that went in. And for me, I'm I'm as almost as much of a boxing mark as I am a wrestling mark. For people <laughs> that listen, I it I've listened. I have boxing in my family. My my grandfather was a coach and a, and a trainer, and his cousin was. Um, his cousin was Lou Salika, who was Bantamweight champion of the world back in back in the day. And so, you know, uh, when I saw the bronzed glove of Joe Lewis from when he fought Max Schmeling, um, I apologize to my wrestling fan listeners, but I think I might have gotten more emotional seeing that than almost anything else that I saw when I was there. Just just being a part of that history um, meant a lot to me. So that that's pretty cool that 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 they still recognize joe lewis in detroit oh, yeah. you know that's as it should be sure but um the the uh the one experience that i ever had with kobo which was very brief i don't know if i mentioned this to you but when i uh, this was 20 21 years ago and i was working for wwe and they had sent us there was a raw and smackdown run that were happening in raw was happening at the joe lewis arena in detroit smackdown was happening in cleveland or it might have been vice versa, one or the other, but it's just kind of a loop around, you know, the lake there to go from one to the other. And um, they sent me on this trip and we were we pulled into the parking lot 
again, my memory is so, this is a long time ago, but I remember seeing, we're approaching Joe Lewis Arena on foot, and to my side, I see Cobo Hall, and and everybody is kind of passing it by, and I stop, because even then I was a weird freak fanatic when it comes to Detroit wrestling for whatever reason, and I looked over and I said, holy crap, that's Cobo Arena, and the back door, there was like this big back opening, you know, mm-hmm. I don't know if it was like a loading section or something, it was actually open. And I walked inside like I it was nothing was going on. And I peeked in there and just briefly looked around. I didn't go inside inside, but just from the doorway there and just, you know, thinking of everything that happened in that building. And I don't know what it is, but even from then, I had it in my mind. Like one day I'm going to write a book about all this. I just <laughs> well, you know, you, you, you mentioned why be interested in Detroit wrestling for a time there from, let's say, the 70s. It was you know, people from your part of the world like to say the Madison Square Garden is the mecca of professional wrestling. We like to think that Kobo Arena and the Olympia were the mecca because you know you've had Dave Brzezinski on the show. He can talk you know from firsthand experience about the Dick the Bruiser running shows at the Olympia at the same time that the Sheik was running shows at, at Kobo with almost the top NWA stars that exist and uh, and both places damn near selling out. I mean, that's a lot of people watching wrestling at the same time. Right. And that's something that I didn't fully know the extent of it until I started doing the research, looking up the results and things. And I, I'm going to tell you, it's true. If you look the stuff up going from late sixties into the early seventies, there was nowhere where you could find a stack of a card on a regular basis as what they were doing at Kobo, especially during the war with Dick the Bruiser, because they were trying to like stack the deck. Because look, here's the reality, and maybe I'll I'll piss off some of my fellow New York fans, because I'm in all the Facebook groups. I'm in the Detroit (laughs) one. I'm in the WWF one. I'm in all of them. And um, the fact (laughs) is, the Garden, you know, you could sell, you could sell a show just based on the fact that it's the Garden. Because the Garden, the main... The main uh, vibe or whatever you want to call it, the main thing that the Garden had going for it was boxing, was that it was the undisputed in those days. This is pre-pay-per-view, pre-Las Vegas kind of taking over everything. Madison Square Garden was the center of the world of boxing. The, The biggest fights from the 20s into well into the 70s you were still finding was Madison Square Garden. And so it carried over. It was like wrestling got the rub from boxing because you have a ring sport, right? That or sport in quotation marks that's taking place here in Madison Square Garden. And in fact, I think even in the early days, um, they were they were actually using the boxing ring. They weren't even they didn't even have a special ring for wrestling. So you know they're wrestling in the same ring that you know Rocky Marciano is is boxing in essentially. And so it was not fun for the wrestlers. I'm no, sure. no, because it was just it was just you could talk <laughs> to those guys. It was just wooden boards. Well, that was the a, same at Kobo with a canvas over it. That's also why you didn't see guys leaving their feet too often in those days, <laughs> right. because that's a good way to break your body into little pieces. But what I'm trying to say is that if you if you look at the cards in those days, look, a lot of those garden shows top to bottom. They're not they're, they're they're not always something to write home about. Honestly, the main event will be a huge hot main event. Maybe you'll get a great semi main event, 
But a lot of times you go down the card and it's a slow burn. It's a slow starting card. I just did a, a story on the 60th anniversary of Bruno San Martino winning the belt in the garden. And if you look, you know, I looked at the actual show when he won it. Rest of the card was nothing that great, really. It was that match and the semi-main. It was like a fabulous kangaroos tag team match. Outside that, the card was very pedestrian. But in Kobo, I mean, you're talking from top to bottom for a period of like five or six years, seven years. It was like the all-stars of wrestling happening oh, there yeah. constantly. Interestingly, I, I saw one recently that David uh, posted that showed the Sheik on top with maybe Wild Bull Curry. And the world champion, the tour, Dory Funk Jr., the touring world champion at the time, was the secondary main event against some other Detroit guy like Don Kent or somebody like that. It's like, really, the, the world champion couldn't even get the top billing? That happens. You know, yeah. that's a, that's another thing that they don't always tell you when you when you look at wrestling history through, like, the rose-colored glasses and you don't actually dig into the results is that there were a lot of markets where they were a member of the NWA and they, but they didn't really need the NWA world champion often to draw. And <clears throat> even New York was like that for a time. Cause they had, they had Raka and you know, that's all that New York fans cared about in the fifties was Raka. Like Luth, when Luthes came there, it wasn't that big of a deal. I've talked about this before, but there were other markets that were the same where you would see. And you know, the NWA, I don't know if they were thrilled about this because I think they might have had rules about it, but the world champion on some of these shows would not get the the main event match. Wow. Yeah, it was it, it happened in a few different areas. There were some areas that were more a little more plugged in to the NWA than others in those days. Sure. But um uh, so I I want to talk cuz I also had I had Mickey on the show. I don't know if you ever heard I think I, I I heard that one, yeah. I had Mickey Doyle on the show. We talked a little bit about the book. Um, and so for people that might be interested in it, how did that project come about, the Mickey Doyle biography? Well, it goes back to, I, I met uh, supermodel Dave Drayson, otherwise known as Dave Brzezinski, who uh, was a you know big-time wrestling photographer, eventually became a manager, and et cetera, et cetera. But he's a, uh, so we met through Facebook, found out that we both had the were big fans of the chic and red wine. <laughs> so that got, a, you know, I, I visited his house and we talked wrestling and drank wine. And so at one point a, a local wrestler passed away and he goes, do you want to meet me at the funeral home? And I was in working in Dearborn at the time and uh, it was in Dearborn. So I said, sure. So I go to this funeral home and it was, you know, all these wrestlers, that I didn't know because they were, you know, recent independent type wrestlers. But there was one guy that looked pretty familiar over on the other side of the room. And I, I asked Dave, I go, is that Irish Mickey Doyle? Yeah. So I went over there and I introduced myself and talked to him. You know, he's a nice guy. I was surprised that I was the same size as he is. And I'm not a big person. <laughs> and, and, you know, this guy's a professional wrestler. Wow. <laughs> um, but, you know, he's not as buff as he was in those days. But he was the nicest, nicest could be. We became friends on Facebook. And one day we were talking on the phone and I, I said, hey, Mick, have you ever? Because he was telling me great stories, like incredibly yeah. interesting. Yeah. Stories. He's got some great stories for sure. Yeah. And I said, have you ever thought about writing a book? No. I go, <laughs> you want to? <laughs> and he goes, sure. So that started it. 
you know, and I spent several hours with him recording his stories and he handed me uh, his ledger books from his first couple of years as a wow. wrestler. And it had in it who he wrestled. Amazing. Whether he won or lost, how much he made, how much he spent to get there. <laughs> and oftentimes he lost money. <laughs> right. So yeah. It was just, re- it was really interesting. You know, the first part of the, the books are very detailed and later on they get less and less so, but, uh, and it, it was, it was really fascinating to really get into his life because his wrestling life was interesting. Cause I only knew him as the guy who lost a lot in Detroit. Right. But he left Detroit and did fairly well for himself in other parts of the, of the country, which, you know, happens. And so I didn't know any of that. And he was telling me, oh, I was a main event in Alabama for several years with Mike Boyette as a California hippie. So then you, you do the research and you go, wow, he, he really he was a champion. And uh, so that was interesting. And, you know, to, and, and his life outside the wrestling ring was just as fascinating to me. It was, he worked at a, a psychiatric hospital and there was tons of stories that came out of there. Oh my. Uh, he, he met his first wife there. She was a patient. So <laughs> he, he he told me that. He told me that. Yes. That's, so there was uh... a lot of stories there. But <laughs> what one of the fascinating things about uh, Mickey's story is that there were many times, probably three or four times in his career where he was just on the verge of making it big and something happened either with his marriages or his kids or something and he couldn't pull the trigger. Like he almost could have been in New York, but Something happened. He didn't go. He almost went to Stu Hart and his wife said she didn't want to go to Canada. So he turned around with their trailer and went back. So there was there's a few of these things that happened that, you know, it's like what? Because you, you, the guys like Flair and Hogan, I mean, these guys sacrificed all that family stuff. Yes. You, to, have, to, you have to be an asshole, basically, yeah, to, to be, succeed. To yeah. be a big, I mean, to be a big, big star, you have to sacrifice family and kids and all kinds of stuff. He wasn't able to quite do that. I mean, he, I think he did okay as a wrestler, but because he wasn't ready to say, screw the rest of the world, I want to be a wrestler. Uh, he, he just didn't get to where those guys were. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, it's like that in a lot of lines of work, but I mean, wrestling is known for that. You have to just completely give yourself uh over to it, honestly, I, you know, and, and some people, like you said, they don't want to make that choice of, of family over or, or of work over the family because invariably, like we know, there's so many stories of wrestlers with either estranged children or oh, right. complicated relationships with their children. Maybe the children are, have a chip on their shoulder, that kind of thing, or, or well, look some, at the, the sometimes they overcompensate too. To the know. Dusty Rhodes uh, uh, biography that was just on not long ago. Mm-hmm. His kids are completely. I mean, they love their dad and everything, but they really are uh, uh, conflicted because he wasn't there a lot early on, especially right. in the, the natural. He has well, real issues. Oh, yeah, because he was the one that was he was a kid when his dad was on top of the world. I mean, his right. dad was the man, the top draw in the entire industry when, you know, right. uh, by the time Cody came along um, and especially Co- his memory of his dad. I mean, his dad was dancing in polka dots by that point. I mean, it was a whole different it was a whole different thing. But yeah. but 
Dustin really got to uh, witness all that or not witness it as the case may be. But, you know, it's like other people have told me this when I have conversations with people that are uh, children of wrestlers or even, you know, children of very famous people. The idea that I have to share my mom or dad with the world like they're not completely mine. Like I know that I'm competing with all these fans for their attention, you know, it's whether, whether, whether they, go out to, they go out to dinner as a family and then people are right. coming up while they're wanting an autograph, you know, for actors, the same thing. Uh, this is my time with my dad. Get the hell away. <laughs> I, I had an interesting experience, which I now, as I've gotten older, I've come to appreciate and understand at the time I was a little t- ticked off, but um, I met Nick Bockwinkle at oh. the um, WrestleMania 23. They inducted him in, in Detroit, actually. Uh-huh. The, the year they inducted Sheik, right. they inducted Nick Bockwinkle. And so he was there. He was he attended WrestleMania. He was at the after party. And we had the greatest conversation at this after party. I mean, we talked almost the entire time. At the time, he was representing the CAC. And so he was also trying to broker a healthier relationship between the CAC and WWE, which he actually succeeded in doing. But I mean, we we hit it off. We were talking about, oh, uh, well, we're going to work. We'll work with WWE magazine because that's where I was. We'll do this. We'll do that. And it was great. The next morning at the hotel, I came downstairs and, you know, uh, everybody was kind of having breakfast in the hotel lounge area. And I saw Nick and his wife. And I think there might have been someone else with them, maybe some other family member. And I went over just sort of like to pick up where we left off from the night before. And he really just immediately shut me down. Like <laughs> almost like he didn't even know me. And, <laughs> and, and I was like, what's, what's happening here. And, but I realized that that was his time with his wife, with right. his family. And, you know, he didn't want to, to all, to have to cater to everybody else in that moment. And I knew it because we continued to correspond after that. He wrote letters to me at the office there. I still have him on his, letterhead i have oh, one nice. framed on my wall a nick bockwinkle letterhead so i mean it wasn't like he was big timing me or anything it was just in that moment that was his time for his family his right. personal time you know he was great he was yeah. truly a great worker oh god and, yes and great on the mic oh he was one of the i mean he, he's somebody that needs to be talked about more because um sure. it's interesting his career was so long so long that you actually do have guys even my age who remember him from the 80s. They remember like old Nick Bockwinkle when he was really hanging on and feuding with Kurt Hennig and that kind of thing. They remember that. But I mean, that's the tip of the iceberg. If you you can go down a rabbit hole, I mean, he could do it all. He could talk. He could obviously in the ring. He was good enough to be an NWA world champion, but he didn't want to have to tour. <laughs> um, he was one of those guys like because he's with Heenan. And that's to me, that is the ultimate wrestler manager combination, Nick Bockwinkle oh, yeah, and Bobby Heenan. But it's also, talk. they could both talk. And it's one of those pairings. There was another one like that. Oh, actually, Superstar Billy Graham and the Grand Wizard reminded me of that because it's like, um, this guy doesn't really need to have somebody talk for him. <laughs> you know, it's almost like a cherry on the Sunday that he has right. this guy with him. But he could do it all himself. I even said that to Ken Patera because Ken was managed by the Grand Wizard too in the WWF, and I, and I said, you know, you didn't really need anybody to talk for you, but it added to the presentation still, even right. still. Well, the thing about the Grand Wizard was if you were 
a top heel, you got the Grand Wizard to come with you. Or you got Blassie or you got Albano. But the the main guys got the Wizard. Right. And it's funny when you look at it, too. Uh, the Wizard had um, two world champions while he was there, including the one that really stuck, Superstar Graham. He had Stasiak, too. And you're right. It seemed like he was kind of a cut above. It's like I forget how it broke down. Like Blassie would get the the foreigners, you know, Bla- and or some Bla- tag teams. Albano, that was his thing. Yeah. He had all the tag team champs. Blassie would also tend to get the guys, the the faces who had turned. Oh, <laughs> you get like Spiros Arion or right. uh, or uh, uh, Victor Rivera. He would get, if I'm remembering this right. He would get the guys that would turn bad. So they all had their little niches. And it almost seems like they would give uh, the wizard the guys that were the best all around workers in a way. It's kind of weird. Yeah. Well, you know, they had they they got them from the sheet. So they they, they had to sweeten the pot. <laughs> There's a story. And I don't know if if we can mention this, if not, I'll cut it out. But. Now you're you're interested in working on a book about Ernie Roth, the Grand Wizard, correct? right? Okay, is that it's, okay to mention? Absolutely, and <laughs> it's. I mean, I started a, lo- a couple of years ago and was going great guns for a while, and then it kind of dropped off. Although I'm still collecting information and trying to get more information, but it, it's uh, when you're, uh, as you know, when you're when you're um, when your subject is no longer with us, mm-hmm. it's a lot more difficult to get his story. And when you're working with somebody who was in professional wrestling, which isn't terribly factual to start with, it makes it a, a very difficult job, which is why your your Sheik book was so amazing, because you were able to get that much factual information about that guy. Well, it, it's tricky, like you say, because in those days, they didn't want anybody to know anything about them. And especially somebody like we were saying before we started, but somebody like Ernie Roth, who in those days, a lot of his, his lifestyle would have been kept secret anyway, just because uh, that he, he, was, was. He, he was a gay man in the 60s and 70s, you know, and, and especially in an industry that's very um, I want to say it's interesting. I want to say I don't think the industry was hostile because there, there were so many offbeat, oddball, unorthodox people in wrestling. That's what I'm learning is that, you know, I asked some of the people that I have talked to, it's like, did his sexuality, like, bother anybody? And everybody said, hell no, we had murderers and killers. <laughs> we had all kinds of people. That was right. nothing. No, and it seemed like, uh, you know, I say like somebody like Pat Patterson, that's another example, where, like, I think they're, they're, it depended on who you were dealing with. Like I'm sure they were deal they they would deal with those issues from time to time, but generally speaking, if you compared uh, the the culture of pro wrestling in the 1960s, let's say, to the culture of the rest of America in the 1960s, I think you'd have a much easier time in wrestling than you would in a lot of other lines of work and walks of well, life. I, you know, it, you would think that it being that it's such a macho business that that would be frowned upon and people would be shunned and nothing could be further from the truth. People, I mean, it is the most diverse group of people going back to the sixties. You had black people, you had uh, Asians, you had uh, Latinos, gays, and God knows what else you had. And they were all working together and got along and were best friends and all this kind of stuff. So, you know, wrestling is kind of an example to the world. 
Well, the Hell's Angels. That's that was another example from Detroit <laughs> Wrestling alone, which was I I thought it was hilarious when I was learning about them because the Hell's Angels they were a tag team in Detroit. The future Chris Colt was one of them. They were promoted as brothers, but they were actually partners in real life. <laughs> and it's almost like their their um their persona was somehow was somewhat based in in reality, even though they were not members of the Hell's Angels, but but they were together. They were right. an item. <laughs> yeah. So it, it's it. So I you know I hope to get you know kickstart the the research on on the Roth book, and I might have to just kind of say to myself. Well, I'm not going to get the whole story, but if I can get enough right. of it to make it interesting to people, then I will have you know done as well as I could do. So there's a there's a great story that I put into the Sheik book. I will steal it by about. The way. Please do because <laughs> I stole I stole from other wrestling books. Why not? I but will give the, credit where credits due. However, so apparently, for people for the benefit of people that have not read my book, even though you should, um, the Sheik. I mean, any of the five thousand five hundred people that are probably listening to this podcast. That's right. They're they're all listeners. Every by single the way, person. You only outsold me by 5000. I think it's a weird freakish anomaly and I don't know how it happened, but I'm glad that it did happen. I don't know. Who would have uh, ever it, thought it was well I mean a book man. about somebody who you know who peaked 50 years ago and and who's been dead for 20 years is wild to me, but hey, what you know, I guess it's because I never shut up about it. That probably helps. Well, you know, think about it. Back in the day when he was hot you, it's hard to find a wrestling magazine where he's not on the cover. Right. Him and Bruno, they were the two yeah. guys. Yeah. And sometimes together. <laughs> yeah. So um, people the, our age and older and a little bit younger, maybe, you know, remember those days and are, are drawn to that story and don't know as much going in as we did. Um I mean, I, I was fortunate to spend a weekend with the Sheik and it was, you know, one of the defining moments of my life just because I was always a fan of his. But um, to read all that, it was it was it was incredible. Let's talk about that. I don't want to lose that thread before <laughs> I get to my Ernie Roth story. Let's talk about your weekend with the Sheik. Can okay. you do that, please? How did that happen? Well, I was between freshman and sophomore year of college. And I was sitting around, and I think I was watching wrestling, and I saw that the Sheik was going to wrestle Luis Martinez in Windsor, which is right across the river. So I went, you know, I got nothing to do on a Saturday night. I'm going to go over there. So I went over there, bought a ticket, and sat there and watched the show. While I was in between matches, I noticed that his manager at the time, who, uh, I forget his name, Pat Shane, um, who was a referee back in some of the YouTube videos that of of that era? Was he but related he was, to Larry Shane? No, but he was named after him. The Sheik huh. gave him that name because you know Larry Shane, the Sheik were really close. Right. So I I told him I said you know listen I'm a you know I'm writing in, on the school paper if you need any help writing the body press mat you know I'll be happy to help out so I gave Pat my phone number. So you know a few days later I'm sitting at home I get a call hey this is Pat. The Sheik wants to know if you want to come on a trip to Canada like next weekend. We're going to London for a couple of shows. He was working for Dave the Wild or the Wolfman or yeah, Bear, the Wolf, Man. Bear, Bear Man. Bear Man. Yep. So um I go, sure. Yeah. Now what I didn't know is they just wanted to use my car. <laughs> <laughs> so I drove to pick up 
Pat and Warren, I believe. And then I, and then we had to drive to Toledo where the Sheik was shacked up with his, at the time, girlfriend. Right. So then we had to, then Sheik drove very fast all the way to, uh, uh, to London. And the, oh, after the, the, the Windsor show, they invited me to the Tunnel Barbecue, which is a pretty famous barbecue joint in Windsor. So I was at the table with Pat, the Sheik, myself, and a whole gang of the guys that were on the card. And uh, we just were talking wrestling the whole evening. It was incredible, incredible. So after that, I I got the invitation to go to uh, to London. So we did, and uh, I was you know afraid he was going to crash my car, but he was a pretty good driver, so that was not a problem. And I had a V eight, so I guess he was happy about that. Uh, so yeah, I saw he wrestled Martinez both nights of the show. One uh, I forget where the first one was, and then the second one. And uh, we had a, a, a barbecue at Bear Man's Cottage out in the middle of nowhere. And it was interesting because, you know, I was in the front seat with the Sheik and he's driving and you know, we're talking wrestling. And he's nice as can be. And then I started asking some interesting questions. Like, I remember the time when the stomper, the, the kangaroos broke the stomper's leg. And then the next thing you know, he's out, he's in Japan, wrestling in Japan. He goes, you know, uh, <clears throat> if you're going to keep asking questions like this, you're going to end up in the trunk. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I'm going to ask you the question that I asked a lot of people who had conversations with the Sheik that I think people are interested in. What did his voice sound like? Because no one ever, there's no recording of it other than just the gibberish that he would do. It was just like a regular person. I mean, he didn't have, obviously there was no accent because he was an American. Uh, uh, he's very soft spoken. Uh, even when he was threatening me, he was very soft spoken. Uh, it was one thing was very, I found very interesting, very interesting. We're in the bear man's place. I'm sitting in a couch watching WWE or WWF, WWF at the time wrestling and I think it was John Studd was doing a promo, screaming his ass off. You know, I'm going to kill this guy. Whatever. Sheik walks by and he looks up and he goes, I don't know why they yell. <laughs> <laughs> Easy for him to say. Yeah, right. right. He never had to talk at all. There's that famous story where at one of the NWA conventions that all the promoters are there. And Terry Funk is the NWA world champion. And he gets up and gives a whole speech to the promoters talking about how we need to teach guys how to do better promos today because you can't sell tickets without promos and these guys can't talk, and which sounds very familiar, right? Blah, blah, blah. And then all of a sudden, the Sheik stands up and he goes, listen, I've drawn more money than anybody in this room, and I've never cut a promo in my <laughs> entire career. You know? <laughs> yeah, he was an anomaly in that case because you, you do need to be able to talk. Yeah, or have generally, talk you do. You do. And the reason that he could get away with it was that he was the exception to the rule. Like yeah. he, he stood out by virtue of the fact that he never talked. And, there, you know, there would be other guys like that, but he was like one of the few. And going back to Ernie Roth, I mean, Ernie Roth did a lot of talking for the Sheik. Yeah. And then he after need, him, he was needed. Creechman, who I love. I, I think, you know, one of the things I found out when I was doing the book, because, you know, he had he had a. a I guess he was from the Montreal area or, mm -hmm. and he had a business there. He had a junkyard that he owned. Oh, really? Yeah. And so he was kind of rooted to the area. And so for that reason, he never really left that area. He worked, he would work Quebec territory. He would work in Ontario. He would do the Sheik's area. He didn't really go outside of that. So 
when the Sheik would like, for example, if the Sheik went to Texas, he would have Gary Hart as his manager. Right. When he went to Florida, he might have Lord Alfred Hayes as his manager or somebody. But because of that, not enough people were exposed to Creechman. If you if you look up videos of him, my God, I he's got to be the most underrated manager of all time. I mean, you're what a probably talk. right, but I hated him, and maybe that was. But you his were supposed job. to hate him, right? That's like Cornette. I hated him. But now when I listen to his, his podcast, he's such a historian. And now I love him because he's just he's like me, you know, <laughs> yep. the the uh, there's a scene. Yeah, I've talked about it, but in I like to hurt people hands down. My favorite oh, that, scene. The, the, Good the debate God. between Veruch yes. and Shreechman. The that debate is classic. between you Ernie Roth. find that on YouTube because it's. Yep. It's a classic between right Ernie Roth, who was Abdullah Farouk in, in Detroit, and Eddie Creechman. They both had been managers of the Sheik. I guess the Sheik had turned uh, face because Creechman had turned on him, had thrown in the towel or something. And Farouk had come back to town to help Sheik against Creechman and Ox Baker, I think it was. Yep. And they had this debate. I mean, you cannot, words can't do it justice. It is when people talk about the absurdity of wrestling that is that sums it all up in a scene like that. Just the insanity of these two men and they're perfect. They are just natural. I talked to Brian Greenberg, who was one of the guys that made the movie. And he said that he kicked himself because there were outtakes where they were rolling on the floor laughing. They couldn't keep (laughs) a straight face and that the footage doesn't survive, but what does survive is the finished product. And it's, unbelievable <laughs> well you know terry sullivan says they did it in one take oh i'm sure they did but what he was saying is like as soon as they stopped they started laughing and rolling on oh. the floor and they couldn't and and they had filmed that part but i guess because it got obviously it wasn't used in the movie so the footage of it you know doesn't survive my, my favorite part of that debate is when uh ernie roth is Comparing the Sheik to George Washington, Dwight Eisenhower, all the, the great generals and presidents of the United States, <laughs> and, and then your noble Sheik. Whoa, there's a stretch. <laughs> and every time you would get, you know, this is those things you just could do back then. One of the ways that Creechman would get heat, he was supposed to be, you know, he was this completely stereotypical Jewish character, just obnoxious, loudmouth gigantic star of David, the whole thing. But he would talk about how he was pro-Palestine. Yeah. He would do this so that even the Jewish fans would hate him. <laughs> so that, you know, the, the non-Jewish fans and the Jewish fans would all hate him. And he would he would work it into his promos wherever he could about, <laughs> about Palestine and all this kind of thing. Uh, just amazing. And managing an Arab. <laughs> right. Managing an Arab. Which was the thing you would see? Uh, who was the one? There was a, a Jewish manager. Oh man, who Saul managed? Yeah. Uh, oh yes, he managed a Nazi German tech team. <laughs> um, right, Saul Weingruff. Right, Saul Weingruff managed. Um, I want to get this von right. Hess and von Schatz or somebody like that. Von something. Von Brauners. Somebody yeah, von listening Bronner. to this will get me. Von Steigers. Von something. Von, you know, not the von Erichs, but some <laughs> other von. And so, again, it was this whole – that was the whole thing of, oh, my God, you're a traitor to your people and <laughs> and this whole, whole kind of thing. It's wild what they could get away with yeah, back And then. people in those days, you know, people now don't understand that, you know, 
those guys got death threats and their cars ruined and all kinds of stuff happened uh, as because people, whether they believed it was real or not, they got irritated enough to do violent things to the guys themselves and to their vehicles and houses in some cases. Well, there's, and th- there was the story with the Sicilians, how they got yeah. threatened. They got threatened by the mob. And this would have been, <laughs> I guess in the sixties, right? Albano I think and, it uh, was, it might've been Giancana or somebody, somebody, uh, they sent some guys to sh- go to the locker room and let them know they didn't really appreciate how they were caricaturing the mafia. And this is they, even before they, they the asked, Godfather. This is they like, asked for something. I think they were wearing a glove. Yes, the came. black glove. The the so mononero. The mononero. If you take the glove off, we won't kill you, or some along those lines. Because well, because and it's funny because they were both Italian guys, Lou Albano, yeah. Tony Altamore. They probably had some knowledge of. They probably knew somebody who knew somebody who knew somebody. Oh, I can, sure. I'm half Sicilian. I, I I I'm okay to say that. But they 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 probably knew somebody because something like the black glove that's actually representative of what was called the Mano Nero, which was like one of the first organized crime Italian groups to infiltrate the United States. They were almost like a terrorist group. They were like an anarchist group. And they came over. They're they're featured even in Godfather Two. They're mentioned the Mano Nero, mm-hmm. and they were known for wearing the black gloves. So that's probably where they got that from. Right, but I think they the deal they they struck with the mob was get rid of the glove, and I think we'll be fine. <laughs> right, because they, they it was a little too close. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> a little a little too real. Yeah, right. That's crazy to think how it was back then. But oh, before so before I forget the Ernie Roth thing. Sure. The story of how he came, how he transitioned from Detroit into New York was that it was because of the Sheik headlining in New York against Bruno um, that they got a look at him. Vince mm-hmm. and those guys got a look at Ernie as a manager. They really liked what they saw. And so a cup, basically this would have been like 68, 69. So then a couple of years later, when I forget who it was, they were really shaking up. I, Bobby Davis had left as a manager. Um, Wild Redberry had retired, and I think he was close to death. And they were really looking to bring on all, all different, all new managers. Like they made, they took Albano from a wrestler to a manager, and they and they thought Ernie Roth would be the guy, and they wanted to bring him in as a full time manager. But but it's funny because in the story. He he's very nervous because he's very loyal to the Sheik and he doesn't want to feel like he's betraying the Sheik. And he goes basically hat in hand or turban in hand. <laughs> he goes to the Sheik's house. Fez to, in hand. Right, fe, right, Fez. It was a Fez back then. But to sort of like beg or plead or whatever or, you know, be diplomatic. But what he didn't know was that Vince Sr. had already contacted the (laughs) Sheik and gotten permission to do it, but the Sheik didn't tell Ernie that, and he let him go through the motions. See him grovel. Right, and he (laughs) then said, I already knew. I knew. Go go make your money. You know, how can I tell you no? You're going to New York. Well, he, I think he was good about that. He sent Mickey uh, Doyle to Florida after he... He did a run for about a year in Detroit, and it was obvious he wasn't because of all the stars coming in. He wasn't going to make any any traction, right? And so he sent him down to Florida, 
where he, he met guys like Ronnie Garvin. And, and so, and Mickey learned a lot in Florida from that crew, Eddie Graham and so forth. And then from there, he went to Alabama and, and became a pretty big star. So and you, you, in those days, you, you had to bounce around and, and the sheet right. would make calls for him. So like, can I, I want to send you to Florida and they'll, it'll all be set up when you get there. Well, Mickey also told me, I hope I'm not, maybe I'm confusing. I don't think this is somebody else. You hear so many of these stories <laughs> over the years, but I think it was him. He told me that one thing that he regretted doing was that he went out to California. I think he said that Greg Valentine had contacted him yep. to come to California and he regretted doing it because basically California was dying. Like the territory yeah, well, was dying. He got to California I mean, it was California was a great place to be. You had Blassie and Tolos, and it was it was hot. The Sheik would go there all the time. For but this Pope was Pope. after this was after that. I think it was sort of on a decline. Yeah, I don't. I forget the time frame. But what happened was, the week Mickey got there, they lost their TV deal. That was it. They were they got <laughs> stuck on Spanish television. Right. right. So and after the, and it just died a slow death after that. Right. So he had worried that he had burned his bridge with the Sheik and he couldn't go back. Right. You know, which I don't think was the case. But. And, and there's a funny story about Mickey in Los Angeles when he got he he, had, he got Stu Hart to hire him in uh, Calgary. And so they and this was in January. They always had a big battle royal in uh, in L.A. And they always brought in Andre and he probably always won. And so the thing was, Mickey, they knew Mickey was leaving. He'd put in his notice and everybody was cool with it. So but what we're going to do is we're going to we're going to crush you. And so that it's like you're going to die. So they had Andre like squash him and they'd stretchered him out the whole thing. So Mickey was dead and gone. We'd never see Mickey Doyle again in Los Angeles. So a week later, he's on his way to Calgary. His wife decides not to go. So he turns around and comes back and Mickey's like, well, I'd like to come back to work. And they said, but you're dead. <laughs> <laughs> you got crushed by Andre the Giant. You can't. You're done. He goes, all right. So we'll throw a mask on you. I think I forget what they call him, Mister America or some Mister Americano or something. I mean, they they gave him some Spanish thing, and he didn't know a word of Spanish. And and he tells a story that somebody saw him at a gas station and uh, and they started asking him questions in Spanish, and he didn't know what the hell they were saying. But uh, yeah, so he had to go under a hood because he was Mickey Doyle had died in the Andre the giant situation. So they needed a, you know, and isn't that funny when you see, when you follow wrestling now, you'll, you'll see these guys just get completely destroyed and they don't even bother to sell it the next week. It's like nothing happened there. Oh yeah. And you, and you hear a scratch and when Andy Kaufman was doing the thing with uh Lawler. I mean, he was laying in the middle of the ring and he's, you got to get an ambulance and get me out of here. It's like, it's like we're not paying for that. He goes, I'll pay for it. And, you know, this is all in the ring. So they finally <laughs> they got him the stretcher out because he wanted it to be real. Right. And I think he even said uh, recently, maybe this was mentioned on Tales from the Territories. Lawler said something to the effect that Andy, like he he already needed neck surgery for something, but he had a reason. Oh, really? And so when he went to, so basically I'm, I'm maybe totally misremembering this. Like he knew that there was something wrong with his neck already. And so he worked even the doctors. So basically he shows up at the hospital. He's complaining about his neck, knowing that they're going to find something wrong. 
<laughs> and they go in there and there's something wrong. They x-ray him and his neck's messed wow. up, but it's not because of Lawler. It's because it was already <laughs> messed up. So it was like, it was perfect, you know, and the neck brace and all that. I mean, that was, that was real. He really did yeah. have a neck injury and he really did need to wear the brace. It's brilliant. So you know, here, here's a guy who's not even a professional wrestler, but he took it seriously enough to go to those lengths to make it appear real. That's why when they when they put him just recently in the WWE Hall of Fame, I thought that's the one time where the celebrity induction that they do is perfect and absolutely um, merit. I mean, I, I you know I could see it also with Mr. T when they did that because he was such a crucial part of doing WrestleMania and everything. But this even more just because it's almost like Andy Coppin was more than just a celebrity getting involved with wrestling. He became one of the boys, you know, yeah, he did breakfast with Blassie. Yes. He did uh, some other stuff. So yeah, he was really involved. Yes. I love, I have my VHS copy right over here to my left of <laughs> my breakfast with Blassie. And I, I, I should probably get it on DVD at some point, but I just can't let go of my beautiful <laughs> VHS of that, of that movie. What a great uh, film. <laughs> I can't. <laughs> It's it's uh it's something another another movie that has to be seen to be believed. My breakfast with Blassie. So I just uh, Dave just posted something on uh on Facebook uh, because he has like almost every body press that ever came out and he, and all of them have cards in it. So every couple of days he throws up a card and he put one up the other day that I'm pretty sure was the first show I ever went to, which was Sheik against Flying Fred Curry. Uh and I know that there were, I mean, I don't remember who else was on the card, but I do remember one other guy that was on the card because he bled and he was on the card and it was the kind of the right year for that to happen. So I was pretty sure that that was it. And uh, so I, I had seen the Sheik Russell as a kid twice again, uh, flying Fred Curry. And then a couple of weeks later, wild bull Curry, because the dad had to, you know, avenge his son, which of course he didn't. <laughs> And then I never went again, although I watched it all the time. And then I saw him again in Windsor the two times against, uh, well, three times against uh, uh, Luis Martinez, the once in Windsor and then the twice in in London. So I've seen him wrestle five times in person. And then, of course, spent the weekend with him. It was uh, there something happened where, you know, you, you hear that the Sheik never broke character, right? Right. I saw him break character in the ring. Wow. We're in London in this little hockey arena and some big fat biker dude unzips his pants and kind of opens his fly up and goes, suck this, Sheik. And the Sheik comes between the ropes. He goes, I'm going to kill you, motherfucker. (laughs) Wow. And then he gets back in the ring, finishes the match, leaves. This guy comes barreling after him. And I was in between because I, you know, I, I was with the Sheik. So I was in the locker room and everything. And so I kind of shut the gate to the locker room. This guy comes blasting through. I somehow managed to avoid trouble. And the Sheik was waiting for him. And by the time I turned around to walk towards the locker room, this guy was flat on his back, bleeding like a stuck pig from I don't know how many holes. And it was really, I guess, and, and the Sheik was giving him a talking to, aside from beating him up. And then 
it was funny because Luis Martinez was, you know, signing autographs after the match. And then he comes walking in while this is going on, looks at the scene on the floor of, you know, the bad guy beating up a fan. And then he looks at me and he shrugs his shoulders and kept, kept walking. <laughs> the good guy did not come to the rescue of the no. fan in that situation. <laughs> and then, so the guy gets up, she lets him up and he kicks him out of the locker room area. And there's police waiting for the guy. And he's like, it's real. It's real. Because <laughs> he's all bloody and messed up. Never, you know, there was no charges filed that I knew of. That's but, great. Uh, the fan, he stepped over the line and, and caught it right in the face. Well, that's like, like everybody says, and it's true. The, these guys felt at least that you had to protect the business in those days. Right. You had to stand up to those kind of challenges because if you didn't, you could hurt your livelihood. Like, you know, you could hurt the, the, the way very the business, business itself. Yeah. The way it was perceived. Cause I had a conversation like this not long ago. It was a debate about, um, you know, how much did fans believe that it was real back then? And it was a debate with the fan who is younger than I am significantly. And they seem to be under the belief that, well, fans Fans always knew that, you know, it was just a show and they just played along with it. And and I said, look, there were a lot of fans like that. I mean, I was in crowds in the 80s, at least. There were, I would say, most of the fans that I was around, they played along to have fun. They were in the moment with it. Oh, if, sure. If you press them on it, they would probably admit like, okay, okay, I know. But a significant portion of that crowd believed a hundred percent what in what they were watching. I would say maybe a third of it believed in the reality of what they were watching, even in the eighties. Well, when I was a nine-year-old kid in the seventies, um, I knew it was fake because I could do a lot of the stuff they did on my front lawn with my buddies. And and it didn't hurt them that much in a lot of cases. Well, right? yeah, well, sometimes yeah. it did. It hurt, but the fact that and I had a, an old neighbor man across the street who used to sit on his couch and watch us wrestle. Because it was entertaining. (laughs) So, um, so I knew it was fake, but you know, you, you, because I did backdrops on my grass, it, it hurt. So, you know, that there was still athletic things happening and it it hurt and so forth and so on. But, you know, um, I forget where I was going with this, but, um, the belief that fans had the thing about it being a fan is even though, you know, I mean, you go to a movie and you know, Tom Cruise isn't really blowing up a Russian camp or whatever the hell he was doing in Top Gun. Um, but you're entertained by it and you and you suspend disbelief for the time that you're there. And I don't care who you are. I've been in Kobo Arena and the Pontiac Silverdome for WrestleMania 3 when Hulk Hogan came into the building. And if you're not moved by, I'm getting goosebumps just thinking about it. If you're not moved by that, you're not really a human being because that is incredible. There's never been a pop ever. And maybe for Austin, I never saw Austin in person, but when Hogan came into a building, it was incredible. The loudest pop that I ever heard actually. And I, and I've been at some Hogan shows, not as big as the silver dome, but the loudest pop I ever personally heard was for Austin it was when he gave Vince McMahon the stunner for the first time. <laughs> that was awesome. It was it was Monday Night Raw at the Garden. 
first time they ever had it there. I was there with my grandfather, okay, who <laughs> who was in his 70s by that point. And I mean, because at that point, Vince was the announcer still. He sure. was still just the announcer. And they were just starting to hint that he was maybe a little more than that. This was before Montreal. Was this the one where he had like an epileptic seizure after getting? Yes. <laughs> yes. It was basically where like, um, you know, they were pressuring. I think if I remember right, the storyline was that, you know, Austin had broken his neck legitimately in the match with Owen Hart at SummerSlam. Mm-hmm. And they were pressuring him not to come back to wrestle because he was hurt. And, you know, he he didn't want to listen to the voice of authority. And basically, um, Mc, they were about to arrest Austin. He was in the ring. He wasn't supposed to be there. Vince came in to try to, like, bail him out and wound up getting a stunner for his troubles. <laughs> and I'm telling you, it was so loud that, you know, when it gets so loud that you can't even hear it anymore, all you hear is your eardrum trembling in, in your head, right? It was that loud. I mean, it was mind-bogglingly loud. And that's just the garden where it's like 20,000 people. I can't even yeah. imagine in something like the Silver Dome where you got four times that many people in there. But And it's uh, a bigger space, too. But it's... Yeah. It was, I, I it's it's invigorating to even think about Hogan. I mean, Hogan came into Kobo uh, when he was, you know, it was shortly after he won the title. I think I forget who he was wrestling. It might have been like Doctor D or somebody that he was he was wrestling against. And it was once he, and that was when they were still using uh, Eye of the Tiger. Yeah, and in fact, that was still when uh, Cannon George Cannon was kind of helping wwf right he was the contact guy in detroit yeah and then i gave him eye of the tiger on a tape as well as the national anthems of both canada and the united states and i think sergeant slaughter's music too so they were the the music wasn't traveling in those days but unless you somebody like me brought it for him (laughs) so so they you know they used that and when his when that music hit boy oh boy that was unbelievable unbelievable that was a big part that's the other thing and it's it's a shame because the music rights of some of these songs that they can't use them when it's on peacock and things like that the original songs because they don't own the rights and that's why like if you watch the junkyard dog on mid-south on peacock you won't hear another one bites the dust which is like half of his whole appeal (laughs) of how he why he was so over and it's the same thing with hogan i mean that eye of the tiger and i even remember that was that was half the whole show i mean when that oh. music hit they and, heard dun, yeah dun, and then the, the place went before it even showed up and, it, and they used it at the first wrestlemania even though you can't hear it they right. played it the night that he won the title from the sheik and the iron sheik that is yeah. and a lot of the you know for basically the first couple of years and i mean honestly real american was intended to be a knockoff of eye of the tiger i mean that was that was because it was something that sort of vaguely sounded a little bit like it i mean that was the idea but when they were a bad song but the fact that that i mean hogan made his i mean he he was good before that but rocky three made him yep and and that I, they should have made it some kind of deal because that was that was just so good. Yeah, I agree. There's some cases where they should cut some kind of a check so they could still use right. uh, the song. I mean, they can't use Free Bird for the Free Birds. You know, yeah, I mean, that's it, a shame, too. I mean, there's no song that Michael Hayes can come into besides Free Bird. Right. Might as well come into silence. 
Well, the the other thing though, and the Iron Sheik reminded me of this, and I don't know if if you knew about this or maybe you were there. I don't know. But another thing, when I was researching the book, what I found out was the first time that Vince and the WWF ever came to Detroit when they first ran Kobo for the first time, it was actually right before Hogan won the title. So the Iron Sheik at that time was actually the WWF champion. But here's what's hilarious. They came to Kobo Arena. It's January 1984. Um, and the Iron Sheik, who is the world champion, is not on that card. On that day, he's wrestling in some other show, some, some B show somewhere. And I can't prove it, but I really firmly believe that they knew that if they're coming to Detroit and Kobo Arena for the first time ever, and they put somebody out there who's their heavyweight champion, and he's some kind of a chic knockoff guy, <laughs> that they would get killed. And I think they knew it. I really do think they thought even I, even Vince doesn't have the balls to do this. So I let's... think I was at that show, and I think the main event was a six-man tag with uh, Andre, Snuka, I think. Snuka, Andre, and somebody else maybe Ivan Putsky against three heels of that. I can't remember. I think the I wild did. Samoans were on it. Yeah. Those guys scared me. Cause they were they, well known in Detroit. Obviously they yeah. kind of started there. Yeah. As the Islanders. Yeah. The Islanders. So but, uh, they didn't, the ring that was not the WWE ring. It was the Detroit ring. And I don't know if, even if it was the Sheik's ring, but it was a ring that Snooker was kind of, you know, he was going to jump off of something. And he, he was, I can see before the match, he was checking out the corners and the posts to see if he was going to stand, what he was going to stand on. And I, I believe he did not feel comfortable. He jumped off of Andre. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess that's more sturdy than those ring posts, at least yeah, right. the way he was looking at it. Yeah, yeah. that, that, Matt, that, that card was like half uh, Detroit guys that right. were left over and then half WWE guys. Yeah, they were. I, I I remember seeing that when I was looking up and down the card because, like you were saying, George Cannon was helping them. You know, like kind of like Vince would do that thing where he'd go into these different markets and he'd have a point man, like he had mm -hmm. Mike LaBelle in L.A. and Paul Bosch in Houston and all that. And a lot of times, those guys would wind up regretting the the deal with the devil that they'd made. And George right. Cannon was one of those guys. He he was he eventually was cut out of the deal and I don't think he really I think he really regretted that he made that deal. But they did a story about him in the WW uh, Victory magazine I think it was called then. Uh I don't have it. I most of my wrestling collection is my cousin keeps it because he's also a wrestling fan. I took him to WrestleMania 1 on closed circuit at Kobo when he was a little kid. So he has all my books except the Sheik book. He ain't getting that one. <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah, they did a they did, part of. I'm sure part of the the sucking up that Vince did in those days was to you know tell the crybaby cannon story to the whole world. Yeah, I think I know the story you're talking about because when I worked there, we had access to all the archives and and it's in one of those early, early either the first issue or the second issue, very early yeah. issues of Victory Magazine. Now that you mention it, I remember thinking. You know why is there an article about George Crybaby Cannon in this magazine? And I, I I didn't know at the time, but yeah, <laughs> yeah, I did. I I knew him a little bit 
just all over the phone and uh, and going to matches. But uh, he was another guy. Kayfabe me. So like, I'm trying to help you out by calling the newspapers with results and giving you music. And I asked a question. He was, he had done some interviews with some wrestlers. He clearly had gone to New York to do uh, to do the interviews for the next show. And because he he was in the same set that Vince used when he was doing New York stuff. Yeah, because he went there to meet with Vince. He went. To, yeah, he was flown but he, so he did. He did some promos with Sarge and some other people, and <clears throat> and so they showed it. And he mentioned that you know, yeah, after the after the bouts, we we did some interviews, you know, uh, ringside. I go, that wasn't here. That was in New York. And he goes, listen here. <laughs> <laughs> well, Vince wanted two things from Canon essentially. What he wanted was that he had Canadian distribution, which was a very big deal because he was running what he, and, and the other thing was his product, his show, his whatever you want to call it, was called Superstars of Wrestling. Right. Which was the name that Vince wanted. He already had it in his mind that he wanted to rebrand his wrestlers. He wanted to call them superstars. He wanted the, his show to be called Superstars of Wrestling. He wanted that name and he wanted the Canadian TV network. And once he got the, that stuff, he didn't really need him anymore. He didn't need right. him for booking talent. He didn't want to use those local guys. That was just out of necessity. Right. So actually, some of those guys were pretty good. Oh, I'm, I'm not saying that against them. Just saying from right. Vince's point of view. Oh, for, yeah, right. He wanted his troop and they were going to be the same sure. crew going to every show. You know, he had Vince already had Toronto, though, didn't he? He, yes. One of the first places that he went was with Tunney. And, and that's why Jack Tunney became the figurehead president. But Jack Tunney and the that they didn't have that Canadian TV network that canon for whatever reason had with superstars of wrestling he was he was at that point in time being shown in more markets and and in and places that vince wanted to be and uh it was sort of like he was piecing it together like frankenstein he got a little yeah. bit you know he took over the awa he got the whole midwest network of television yeah. you know he was taking over these chunks and getting their TV everywhere he went. It was like just sewing together a, a monster. <laughs> and he had already had the USA Network at that point. He really didn't right. need all these other. He was just trying to get rid of the other people. Right. But cable, you know, cable was different in those days, though. I mean, it was really important to be that he got on there. But syndicated TV was huge. I mean, right. You know, yeah, not everybody had cable. In right. Right. So that was a big thing. I mean, honestly, the primary shows in those days were the ones that were on syndicated TV for him. The cable shows were, were, were kind of secondary to that. Yeah. Well, you know, it, it's interesting how these guys, even though they probably know that, you know, that they know that mm -hmm. it's what it is yet. They still are in protection mode. It was, it, it was it, like with the chic, I was like, I wanted to say, don't insult my intelligence, man. I mean, you're 80 years old and you're, you know, getting hit with chairs and you're walking away like nothing ever happened. Right. But uh, you don't because you don't want to get thrown in your own trunk. <clears throat> right. Well, yeah, like I talked, I just recently talked to Mary Freeze, who is Purpo's daughter, Papera Purpo. Oh, yeah. I had her on here and she was saying how her dad would, the way she put it was so funny, like he was. He was being secretive about things that everybody already knew. Like he would, <laughs> he would like take her into his confidence 
and tell her these things. Don't tell anybody. And she would go, dad, every, everybody knows this already. This is common <laughs> knowledge, what you're telling me, you know, but it's, you know, it's admirable. That's the way oh, that sure. they, uh, they carried themselves back then. It was, yeah. a, it was a different, different world, you know, and, and because it was territories and because it was, you know, the, the pockets were local, they were able to keep the secret right. more so that once it got national, it, it all it, it had to be exposed just because of too many people were seeing it. Right. There's no, that's many true. People we're seeing the same thing all the time. And when there's too much of a spotlight on it, you know, yeah. like a, a lot people always point to the whole thing with Hacksaw Jim Duggan and the Iron Sheet getting busted yeah. together. That was national news. That was in oh. every newspaper. If if that was the territory days, if that was something that happened in just one territory, that would not have been as big of a story. You know? Oh, no. And, the you know, and it, in the Iron Sheik's uh, biography on A&E, they talk, he talks about that and Duggan, Duggan talks about that. And, you know, it's one thing that they were a bad guy and a good guy were riding together. It's another thing that they were wrestling each other at the time. Right. They were actually feuding. They were doing a program. I mean, that that's basically you're dead to rights at that point. <laughs> they might as well. It wouldn't. The only thing worse would have been if they had pictures of them, you know, as the best man at the other guy's wedding. You know, <laughs> that's the only thing that would have topped that. Uh, well, Tim, th this conversation that we've had is proof of what I always say about this show, which is if you get two people that love wrestling and that are knowledgeable about it, that they could just talk and not even realize how much time has gone by. And it goes in the blink of an eye. But we've been talking for over an hour. No kidding. Yeah. Well, believe me, I because uh, I I time this thing religiously and I know <laughs> that we've been talking for over an hour. But uh, but no, I mean, this has been uh, just a pure joy. This is Absolutely. exactly the way I love to do it. You don't need to have a format. You don't need to have a structure. I love conversations like this. Well, listen, it's been great, bud. Yep, I agree. I had a great time and we'll have to do it again soon. Absolutely. All right, buddy. Take care. You too. Bye. Bye. There you have it, folks. My conversation with Tim Keenan. Tim, thank you so much for being on Shut Up and Wrestle as a guest and for being patient as we took a few weeks to get that episode up and running, but I'm glad that we did. And I hope that you will continue to listen to Shut Up and Wrestle. That's because next week, well, there's a lot of reasons to keep listening, but next week, our guest will be Davey O'Hannon. Davey, who I got a hold of through originally through Mario Savoldi for the purposes of interviewing him for the Gorilla Monsoon book. and we did both. We wound up talking about Gorilla, and then in a separate interview, we recorded an episode for this show, and you're going to love it. Davey is great. Other episodes coming up in the weeks to come. As I mentioned, I'm going to have my first From the Archives episode featuring a 2006 interview with Dusty Rhodes, and I've also got plenty of new interviews on the way as well, including Megan Baker Kelly, the daughter of Ox Baker as well as one I haven't mentioned yet. He is free from his Do Not Compete. It is John Giamundo, a.k.a. Johnny Photo, for over 20 years, the chief photographer of WWE and a longtime dear friend of mine. He will be coming to Shut Up and Wrestle as well. So keep listening. Where can you listen to the show? Our website is suawpod.com. 
And you can find every single episode of the show there on that website. You can also go to all the usual places to find episodes of Shut Up and Wrestle. Spotify, Podbean, Podcast Addict, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, all the usual suspects. Subscribe, and I hope you will continue to enjoy the show. While you're at it, join our Facebook group, Shut Up and Wrestle with Brian R. Solomon where you can keep up to date on a day-by-day basis with all the stuff that I talk about here. So please do that if you have a chance. We are hovering around that thousand member mark. So help me make that a reality. If you're looking to get your hands on some of my other work, there's my book, Blood and Fire, the unbelievable real-life story of wrestling's original Sheik, which is available in digital print and audio form on Amazon, at barnesandnoble.com, at Barnes & Noble stores, wherever you get your books. If they don't have it, ask them to order it. Why not? Go for it. Um, Also, the wrestling news. Every morning, your daily dose of everything you need to know about the wrestling business from the Arcadian Vanguard Network. You can find it at thewrestlingnews.com, as well as the Arcadian Vanguard YouTube page. Check it out and let us know what you think. The magazines that I write for, I'm talking about Pro Wrestling Illustrated, you can get at pwi-online.com. Inside the Ropes magazine, which the new issue, the current issue with Gunther on the cover, has my article on the 60th anniversary of Bruno San Martino winning the World Heavyweight title. You can find that article in that magazine and others at insidetheropesmagazine.com. If you're looking for me on social media, I can be found on Twitter and Instagram at Brian R. Solomon. My page on Facebook, my author page that is, is Brian Solomon Writer. And on any of those social media platforms, you will find the link to my author web page, my author website on the World Wide Web. Shut Up and Wrestle is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. And as always, this has been Brian R. Solomon asking you to keep those cards and letters coming in and saying so long from the Nutmeg State.